0: And Rich Linkoff, you know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. W-G-N-T-
1: We've made it to July. We're halfway home in 2020. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Rich Linkoff, Tina Martini, the Legal Eagles are here. My name is Sam Panyonovich. Ben Anderson is making everything work beyond the glass. We'll say beyond the glass today. By the way, I saw this before we get to a happy Canada day. Rich. I saw that 2020 at halftime. It's 2020 42, and the earth has zero points. If this was halftime of a football game, it would be 42 to nothing, 2020. On
2: behalf of the earth, let's wave our white flags and submit defeat.
1: (laughs) Throw in a towel. Is there a towel we could throw in? I don't know. And Tina, you know, happy Canada Day for you and I and Rich, right? We're very excited for Canada Day.
3: Some of us are probably a little more excited about it than others. But, you know, I consider Canadians good friends. So happy Canada
2: Day.
1: We have some show and tell for later in the show. All right, we will get to plenty for usual. We'll leave things off with the SCOTUS panel. We'll talk about legal basis for mandatory masks and also some risk waivers from COVID-19, plus the grab bag at the end of the show. But we, we begin, rather, with our SCOTUS panel. And returning on the panel, Michael Scojo, partner at Mayor Brown. He's the former Illinois Solicitor General, and he also clerk for Justice O'Connor. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Also joining us is Lee Galernt from the ACLU, an adjunct at Columbia Law School. And he actually argued one of these cases we're going to talk about today, the asylum case. Lee, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Lee, just to set it up for our listeners, last week the Supreme Court in the Department of Homeland Security versus Tura Singham, I think I got that name fairly close case, sided with the Trump administration's efforts to speed the deportation of asylum seekers. Uh, they found that a law limiting the role of the federal courts in reviewing those decisions was constitutional. Judge Alito wrote for the majority, this was a 7-2 to two decision, and he said that asylum claims threatened to overwhelm the immigration system. Um, he said that Congress was, in fact, entitled to respond to that crisis by enacting a law that limited the role that federal courts can play in reviewing summary determinations of whether asylum seekers faced a credible fear of persecution when or were they returned to their home country. So, Leah, Sam mentioned you actually represented um, one of the individuals who brought the case. You have said subsequent to Alito's decision, the Supreme Court decision, that the Trump administration's immigration policies have actually made the need for this kind of judicial review more pressing. What did you mean by that? Well, so
4: Congress eliminated or eliminated judicial review, judicial oversight of these truncated asylum hearings at the border back in 1996. And this was a challenge to the elimination of that judicial oversight. And as you said, the court sided with the government and said that judicial oversight could be eliminated, at least at the border. And what we have said is that judicial oversight is always critical, especially when people's lives are at stake. But it's particularly important during the Trump administration because they have so eviscerated the underlying protections in the asylum hearings so that those asylum hearings were bad enough to begin with because they generally take an hour or less, including translation. There's no lawyer there and, and the, the protections are minimal at best. But now with the Trump administration trying to eliminate even those minimal protections, judicial oversight is that much more critical. And I I just want to emphasize that we have never argued that everyone was entitled to asylum. What we've said is they're entitled to fair process and to their day in court. The asylum officers who look at these cases are part of the executive branch. And so what we've said is if there's a legal error, it's for judges, neutral judges, to correct them. And we believe that those... Hearings could have taken place in a streamlined way, um, and, and that's what the Constitution ultimately requires. So this is an unfortunate ruling, particularly while the Trump administration is trying to eviscerate the underlying asylum hearings that would have been reviewed by the, the courts.
3: So Michael, what are your thoughts on the outcome of this case, especially when you juxtapose it with the DACA decision from a couple of weeks ago?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, I certainly agree with with uh, what Lee has said about the importance of judicial review. But I think you know, in terms of the the DACA decision, it it uh, in many ways you know harkens back, I think, for many of us to the census decision of last year. What you have is a, a, a decision by the court. Uh, narrow uh, decision by the court that focuses on the procedural aspects of administrative rulemaking. And in this case, like last year in census, you have a majority of the court uh, talking about um, uh, the, the failure of the administrative, the executive agency to pr- sort of show its work in a way that was that credibly uh, supported Uh, the conclusion that the agency reached. And so the court, you know, carefully declined to resolve the merits uh, of the issue, again, similar to last year's census case, but rather uh, used the Administrative Procedure Act to reach its conclusion.
2: Michael, let's turn our attention, we're going to get back to Lee in a moment, but let's turn your attention to another prominent case that was decided just on Monday of this week, um, this is the abortion case in Louisiana that was really one of the highlights of this term. Many expected the courts, uh, given the conservative majority, to um, side with the Louisiana restrictions on women's right in that state to access abortion clinics. Uh, to many many people's surprise, um, the court not only uh, found that that provision was or that law was unconstitutional because of the restrictive nature of Uh, what it did to women's ability to get abortions in Louisiana, it was um, Justice Roberts uh, wrote in a 5-4 opinion that this law was very similar to the Texas law that was overturned a couple of years ago, and therefore on the basis of precedent stare decisis, he found the law unconstitutional. This is surprising because Justice Roberts has uh, ruled against abortion laws in other cases. Now, you, in addition to having clerked for the Supreme Court, have argued many cases before the Supreme Court, in, uh, including in front of Justice Roberts. My question is, has Justice Roberts now become a liberal, given this decision and other I, decisions?
5: Thanks, Rich. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that is a fair conclusion from, from his concurrence in this case. As you say, I um, it was five to four. Uh, Justice Breyer wrote for four of those five uh, in the majority, uh, in a much broader opinion uh, supporting the challenge to the Louisiana law. Justice Roberts, writing solely for himself in a separate concurrence, is extraordinarily narrow uh, in his opinion. He he goes uh, he even reaffirms what uh, statements he had made four years ago in the Texas case to which you referred, Rich, uh, where he dissented. Uh, and he, he went so far as to reaffirm some of those statements uh, from that decision in this one, in this concurrence. And so uh, I think it, reading the opinion, and I think the, the general take uh, has also been that this is extraordinarily narrow. It, it remains to be seen what alliances will form in future cases. Um, but uh, this is certainly a far cry from a a sweeping or broad endorsement um, uh, of, of, the, of the broader rule that the majority, that the, the, the plurality, I should say, Justice Breyer's opinion announced.
3: So Michael, as you alluded to, there are other abortion restrictions that are winding their way through the courts and are on their way to the Supreme Court. Do you think that those other cases are sufficiently different from Louisiana and Texas to satisfy Roberts and maybe come out a different way?
5: So uh, it's a, that's a great question, Tina. And I think it is the $64,000 question at this point, you know, and 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 part of that, by the way, built into that question is which cases will the court decide to take? And I think that in itself will be extraordinarily important and critical in this process to see what the court wants to place on its agenda in this space, in the reproductive rights area. Um, I think that, you know, people have, who others, too, who have read the, the the chief justice's concurrence, you know, one have noted that even as to other uh, admission admitting privileges cases, you know, he has been he's been narrow enough that it, he appears to want to look at, at future admitting privileges cases with fresh eyes. Uh, so I think it's it's uh, hard to say that he will extend this to other factual contexts. He might, um, but I just don't think uh, he, he's written so narrowly that he certainly hasn't, uh, he hasn't given away where, where, he's, where he's headed in that regard.
2: Michael, expand on that a little bit for our listeners. Explain why you're not surprised by how Roberts ruled in this case, given what we learned about him in his confirmation hearings alone. I mean, in terms of what he said, about this concept of precedence and how much he honors that and is uh, very conscious of this concept of stare decisis.
5: Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the Chief Justice, as you say, since, since his confirmation hearings, has um, consistently espoused the value of stare decisis, the idea that a prior decision of the Supreme Court is binding in future cases that look similar. To that case, and in in this instance, and and people can debate um, the extent to which he and other justices uh, follow that. It's always a tricky debate because with factual differences, it it uh, one can can often take both sides of of whether or not the court is following their precedent or departing from it. But um, as you say, the chief has espoused that principle, and um, he goes. He spends a a, a huge part of his 11 page concurrence in this instance on the notion of stare decisis. And he, he talks about whole women's health. That's the Texas case we've talked about, which was almost identical. The law, uh, the admitting privileges law at issue in that case was almost identical to the law we have here, uh, basically functionally identical to the law in Louisiana. And he makes that point. And he basically says if stare decisis has any force, then it ought to control uh, this case, which is so similar uh, to the Louisiana uh, to the Texas case.
2: Final question, Michael. Uh, the end of the term, we're nearing the end of the term. That's always very exciting. There's always exciting cases that come out um, that garner a lot of public attention. Even though you clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor before the days of the Internet, uh, talk to us about how cases like these cases that we're discussing today I'm sure they felt differently. What was the buzz around the court around the days that these cases were being decided? Did you, you know, feel differently? Um, Did, you know, was it a little more stress, a little more tension? What what were those days like?
5: Yeah, they they were, there was more of a buzz. There was a kind of an electricity in the air in the final few weeks of of June. Obviously, we're we're eking into July here, but historically, it would always, the the term would end uh, with the final decisions at the end of June. Um, people working pretty frantically, there's sort of a set background amount of work that one does every week. And then with the the major opinions with often multiple uh, concurrences, dissents being drafted, um, everything was kind of in flux on those big decisions. And so, yeah, there was an energy, there was a sleeplessness to it. I think there was a certain exhaustion uh, to it as well. Um, uh, and also, you know, understandably a certain nostalgia because uh, clerkships are one year and you're coming up on the end of that one year term as well with, with people you've worked very closely with.
2: Lee, last question on Legal face-off. So you argued this case before the Supreme Court, as you mentioned, you've argued others. But when you argue a case like this, you obviously are representing an individual. But, you know, do you also feel the weight of an entire group of people? In this case, obviously, the ruling affects not just your client, but a whole class of people. Talk to us about how that feels when you're arguing um, and the decision will affect a whole, a whole group of people.
4: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the ACLU is generally bringing test cases and impact cases. So that's general. But when you're in the Supreme Court, you feel even more pressure. So you, fer- you certainly feel the pressure to help your clients who you've spent time with, but you know it's going to affect many other people. Um, and potentially thousands of people and going forward unless Congress fixes the law, which they can do. So I think everyone in the Supreme Court feels a a significant amount of pressure, but when the stakes are life and death as they are for asylum seekers, you feel that much more pressure.
1: That completes our SCOTUS panel for this episode of Legal Face-Off. Michael Scodro, Legal Alert, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you for having me. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, Contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: You can follow Legal Face Off on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. And after you listen to our great program, let us know we did. Just rate review after you listen to the show. Speaking of podcasts, we have a new podcaster joining us now to talk about mandatory masks. Clinical professor of law at Loyola Law School. And also, she's the director of Loyola Law School's Public Service Institute. But most importantly, the host of the brand spanking new podcast, Passing Judgment, she is Jessica Levinson. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a
6: treat. So Jessica, on June 18, California Governor
3: uh, Gavin Newsom announced that wearing face masks is mandatory when Californians are in high-risk situations. Since that time, there's been a lot of debate as to whether these are actually requirements or mere guidance issued by the state. So what's the story? Are they requirements or not? And what exactly does the guidance or what what are the rules cover exactly? What are Californians supposed to do and not do?
6: Yeah, so these are requirements. Uh, they are enforceable. They carry penalties. And the question, of course, is whether or not we're actually enforcing them, which is different. This is the age-old question. If you have a mandate, but nobody enforces the mandate, what's the purpose? And so it, you know, it covers in a very um, broad sense that you should wear a face mask if you're leaving your home, if you're going to interact with people, if you're particularly going to be inside. I mean, there's been a lot of those explainers of, you know, when do you need to wear the face mask? And the short version is, you go outside your house, uh, the governor of California wants you to wear a face mask because of every epidemiological chart, which shows wearing a face mask, and then the line goes down, not wearing a face mask, and you kind of plateau, which is frankly where we are right now.
2: But uh, Professor, what legal authority does Newsom have in other states uh, executives have in actually making this mandatory and enforcing it. Because you know, we've covered on our show how during a pandemic, which is you know new legal territory for a lot of us, a lot of these issues have not been challenged in the courts. So ultimately, when someone does challenge it, what do you think a governor like Newsom or other states that are mandating masks, what legal authority are they going to put forth to support their ability to enforce this?
6: So I think he's going to be on very strong legal footing. And so when you look at our structure of government, I'm gonna go all the way back to the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, but I promise I'm gonna do it really quickly. And so the answer is 10th Amendment to the Constitution says, if we don't reserve this right, meaning we federal government don't explicitly keep it for ourselves, then it goes to the states or the people. What's one of the rights that they did not keep that the federal government didn't keep health, safety, and welfare. So we know that every state has very strong police powers. We know from looking over the past few months that these police powers are frankly much broader in scope than what most of us could ever have conceived at, let's say, at the end of February. So what can each governor and, in fact, mayor do? You can protect the health, safety, and welfare of uh, your residents. Now, There's still a legal check on that. You still have to be able to prove essentially two things. It's a two-prong test. I'm sorry to sound like a law professor. Prong number one is you need to make sure that there is an important enough government interest. Let's be honest. The box is checked on that because protecting people from a global pandemic is important enough. Prong number two, you have to show that the restriction is a good fit for serving that purpose. So let's say we're trying to, uh, let's say that the evidence came out and shows you really can't transmit COVID-19 outside. Then the mask mandate is not a good fit. It's too broad because it includes when people are outside. So you have to, as a governor or a mayor, you have to make sure that you're threading that needle correctly and that your restriction is fitting that goal pretty well.
3: So you had mentioned earlier in our conversation that it's one thing to have a rule or a law, and it's another thing when it comes to enforcement. And there are various law enforcement agencies across the state that have said that they're only going to encourage residents to wear masks rather than actually requiring them to do so. So how can California and the governor effectively prevent the harm that you're trying to guard against if you're not able to enforce what's being required.
6: Yeah, I mean, this is a political question and it's a really difficult one. And what we've seen over the past months is that it is not easy, particularly when the science keeps changing, to convince people that what the governor's telling them to do or what the government's telling them to do is the right call. And people, there's a very strong libertarian spirit and not just in you know, other parts of America, but really in Los Angeles and California as well. And so um, you know, Governor Newsom, California Governor Newsom is gonna have to cajole, strong arm. Um, he's not gonna get into the situation, I think where he will um, impose martial law. But if we get into, and I don't think we're close to it here, but we could get into a situation where you would call in the National Guard. Uh, I Again, I don't think we're close to that, but it is within Governor Newsom's purview. It is an immediate health and safety concern, and he's facing a real problem because you have sheriffs, county supervisors, mayors saying good luck to you and your mask mandate.
1: She is Professor Jessica Levinson, clinical professor of law, Loyola Law School. Professor, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thanks so much for having me. This was a
1: treat.
0: Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey & Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit bdlfirm.com. That's bdlfirm.com. Final
1: segment on the show here, Legal Face-Up. Before we get to the legal grab bag at the end of every show, Rich Lenkov, Tina Martini, Sam is with you here on Legal face Off. And joining us now, we go out to Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, Cary Law School. He is the William Malmese Professor of Law. He is Tom Baker to talk about the COVID-19 risk waivers. Professor, welcome. Thank you. Nice
7: Professor to be with wait- you.
2: Yeah, Great to have you. These these waivers are getting a lot more attention now. Uh, Last week, we heard about waivers that attendees to the Trump rally in Tulsa had to sign agreeing not to sue the campaign if they contacted the virus from attending uh, this rally. Uh, It's come up in Ohio State football program has asked players to sign an acknowledgement of risk waiver. I see waivers all the time in my practice. I defend a lot of companies that use waivers, but talk to us about why they're becoming more
7: prevalent now and uh, whether they're enforceable. Well, so I think they're becoming more prevalent uh, for two reasons. One, they're becoming more socially acceptable, you know, for better or worse. Personally, I think for worse. Uh, And so, you know, I would say for people who don't like, Litigation and don't like tort law. They obviously love waivers, and you know any opportunity they can do to reduce the, uh, you know, extent of uh, tort law, they can do it. And so waivers are one way to do that. And so I think it's kind of taking advantage of a, of the opportunity. And then secondly, courts have become more receptive to them. I would say, uh, and so you have a combination of people who would like to insulate. You know, there are companies from waivers, uh, from tort liability and courts that are more willing to let people do that. And, you know, all of a sudden you've got a lot of a lot of waivers.
2: And, Professor, so our listeners know what we're talking about with waivers. This is a, a piece of paper that you sign that acknowledges that you understand that a certain activity has risks and you're waiving your right to seek uh, a legal remedy for any injuries you may suffer. A lot of our listeners probably go to an amusement park or to a baseball game. We've covered you know, the baseball rule extensively on this show that by buying a ticket, you're in essence signing a waiver, that by going to a jumpy house when you sign that piece of paper, that's a waiver. So that's what we're talking about here. Um, in essence, uh, how do these waivers differ from a federal immunity Shield
7: that we're also hearing about now, uh, given given the pandemic. Well, so a, a waiver, or, or really, I'm I think a a more balanced way of referring to it is as an assumption of risk agreement mm-hmm. that that I agree that something is risky and I'm prepared to engage in that activity, as, you know taking responsibility for the risk and I'm not going to hold someone else responsible. That's different from a federal immunity shield because a federal immunity shield covers. Uh, a, someone from a lawsuit, whether the people that they're dealing with have signed these waivers or not. Now, as a practical matter, if it's something where you can only get in by going through a process where you have to sign the assumption of risk slash waiver agreement when you, you know, in order to participate, there's not a huge difference in practice. Uh, but, you know, if, for instance, at a ball game or something like that, someone didn't sign the waiver, the a federal immunity shield would help them, whereas you know if oh, if you needed to sign a waiver in order to be effective, which you don't, as you know, at certain ballgames, uh, y- you wouldn't be protected unless the person had signed the waiver.
2: Professor, I found it really interesting in some of your writing when you said that these waivers are effective, even though very frequently they're not legally binding. I found that interesting because as someone who has defended lawsuits in which people have used waivers, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, you generally think that by signing it, you're signing away your ability to sue someone. In reality, the case law is such in most states, in our state, is that it's very difficult to use a waiver um, to shield uh, one from liability. In fact, the proponent of the waiver has an affirmative duty in proving a lot of things that are very difficult to prove. Things like parties were in an equal bargaining position, that the signer understood everything that they were signing up for. There's actually a multi-step process. It's not as easy as you signed it, therefore we're not responsible. But right. your point, most people don't know that. So the effect of it is,
7: is the same in, in many situations. Yeah. No. So I was told something very early, you know, I mostly do research and writing about insurance. And very early in my career, I talked to an insurance adjuster and he was like, you know, I really prefer dealing with educated people because, you know, someone's educated. I point out the the line in the insurance policy where it says, Hey, this isn't covered. And you know, that person, they say, Oh, I see that. Oh, my bad. I didn't read it. I know I'm not covered. You know, same thing with, with a waiver. If, you know, if someone signs a waiver, they think, Oh, I signed the waiver, my bad, and they don't go to talk to a lawyer. Now, I think for super serious injuries, people might end up getting to a lawyer anyway, and then the lawyer will help them understand. But for your sort of normal, small thing, and let's be real, for most people, if they get COVID, it will be really like not a good thing in their life, but that probably the damages aren't going to be very high. So they're not going to get to talk to a lawyer who might say, you know what, that waiver is really not worth the piece of paper it's printed on, or at least I can You know, I can make that argument.
1: He is Tom Baker, William Malmisi Professor of Law at Penn Law, sir. We appreciate your time. Thank you. My
8: pleasure. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is Is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will and Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence. Extraordinary client service and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com.
1: It is time for the legal grab bag here. The screen is full. We have bodies everywhere in all the right ways. I mean that, of course. Legal Faceoff, Rich, Tina, Sam, Ben, Emily, a whole crew. Thank you for usual. Joining us today, he's the senior partner and founder of the Illinois Hammer he is Bradley Dworkin. Hey, Brad, what's up? Hey, it's good to be here. Good to have you on the show. And Mary Vandeville, you have heard her on WGN Radio in the mornings for years, handling the traffic, one of my favorite people. Hi, Mary, welcome.
9: Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. I've never hmm. done this before. Don't ask me any legal questions. I know nothing. <laughs> I, I know the least. Not her camera.
1: We all know that I know the least of anybody on this panel. So without further ado... Seven topics. We zoom in, we zoom out, literally. And we'll start with the ex-Minneapolis officers showing up in court this week, Rich.
2: Yeah, the uh, former officers showed up for their uh, initial court hearing. A lot of interesting legal stories coming out of it. The judge uh, warned everybody involved, put a gag order on everyone, said don't talk to the media. And if you do, uh, you stand the risk of us moving the case to another county. Uh, We've talked a lot about Uh, this case and whether the case will be moved Um, and other cases similarly situated and this whole idea that, you know, you need to find a jury that hasn't heard of a case for them to be impartial. I think that that's an old sort of idea and there's no one, let's face it on the planet who hasn't heard of the uh, Floyd situation, hasn't seen the video. Um, The question will always be whether a jury has, despite Hmm. seeing the video, can put aside any preconceived notions of right and wrong and decide the case based on its facts. Because I think none of us want to see a case moved to another venue, even in the same state. Uh, You want to see cases tried in the same venue where the incident occurred. Um, So uh, the other interesting thing I I, I thought yesterday was one of the attorneys asserted that not Chauvin, but I think it was Fow's attorney said that his client was innocent because he is actually heard on the video telling Chauvin to back off. And I've seen the video, like all of us, have I didn't hear anything like that. What I saw from Thau, who was the officer standing there, was you know the abhorrent behavior we all saw, standing there, uh, not turning his back to, to do anything and ignoring the crowd who told him, "Help this guy who's on the ground." What, Tina? What were your takeaways from this court appearance?
3: I completely agree with you. I mean, first of all, the notion of impartial jury, you know, how do you have one in this in this era? And I think you're spot on in terms of how it needs to be measured. I'd like to think, as you pointed out, that in this particular venue, there is a way to get the type of jury and that's impartial enough for purposes of being able to not be biased in its decision making about this case. And as relates to the other officers other than Chauvin and what they're claiming as potential defenses, I agree with you. I think there was some discussion about whether the lack of experience that these others had compared to Chauvin would somehow um, enable them to argue that it was a training issue versus something else. And also that they told him not to do it, that it wasn't right. But we've all seen the video. I didn't hear anything either. This went on for over eight minutes, almost nine. I didn't see these guys getting up at all. They were on top of of Floyd. They didn't get up and say, this is wrong, and I think we need to stop. And I have a problem with believing what they say.
2: Mayor, we've already heard from multiple um, members of the police department, the mayor's office, who have already passed judgment Mm -hmm. on this case. As much as we all saw what we saw, and believe that I personally believe these officers are guilty. Uh, they deserve due process and they deserve, you know, a fair and impartial trial. The uh, One of the attorneys for the ex-officers said that the jurors are already prejudiced by comments like the one from the Minneapolis police chief who called the killing murder. Um, do you think it's possible for these four individuals to get a fair trial um, in Minneapolis?
9: Uh, personally, I really don't. I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know, how How would they even pick a jury that has not really heard that much about this case, number one? And what does the defense look for in a juror for this case, ideally? What are they looking for when they interview these people?
2: You know, that's a great question. Uh, I think, you know, typically, this is a different case. We all agree this is a really unusual case because of the length, yeah. because of how much— Literally, it changed society, right, in just a few weeks. So it's really tough. But typically, you know, as a defense attorney in this case representing the officers, uh, Brad, you would look for, you know, more conservative jurors. You would look for certainly police officers would be your ideal juror, someone in the position of authority, someone who's more conservative, someone who's older, probably someone who, you know, is a white, older male. Um, you know, like it or not, even though you're not supposed to use race as a factor in selecting a jury. In a case like this, race will obviously be a factor. Brad, you represent plaintiffs. Um, what what are your thoughts on on these individuals and in getting a fair trial and, um, you know, some of their defenses that they've they put forth in court this week?
10: Well, Rich, one of the things that we have to remember is that the whole jury selection process has voir dire. And the beautiful thing about voir dire is you can knock off a bunch of jurors and ask them a bunch of questions. So you're gonna have a bunch of tainted jurors for sure. And the problem now that we have, as we all know, is social media. These people are gonna be on their phones, they're gonna be reading all these stories. As Mary said, how are they even gonna get an impartial juror, jury pool? So the question is, should it really be moved, Rich? What do you think? Should the whole jury pool be moved somewhere else besides Minneapolis? So perhaps we have a more impartial jury pool. And we all know it's despicable what happened here, but they still deserve an impartial jury.
2: Yeah. The worry everyone is that if they don't get, if they, if they get what's perceived to be an unfair trial, then, you know, justice won't be served and that'll lead to other problems. Remember in the Rodney King case, that was moved out of LA to Simi Valley, which was a very white, very professional um, jury pool. And you saw the officers acquitted. So, Ideally, I think you keep it in Minneapolis, as Brad mentioned, Wardier. The whole idea of Wardier is to weed out people who do have preconceived notions. But in this case, I agree, it's going, to be, it's going to be really tough to find someone who hasn't already made up their mind about the guilt or innocence of these four individuals.
9: I was wondering, are they going to have cameras in the courtroom for this?
2: That's yeah, a great question. They, uh, the attorneys argue that they should be broadcast publicly to counterbalance some of the publicity that's already uh, been out there, but the judge has not yet ruled. But, man, talk about the trial of the century, right? I mean, oh, yeah. the OJ <laughs> trial, imagine the people watching watching this one.
9: And it'll be a long one, don't you think?
2: I think so, yeah. I mean, inherently with four officers, it'll be long. On the other hand, you know, the video speaks volumes and should uh, cut through a lot of the time that would otherwise be there if we didn't have video.
1: Let's move from Minnesota to Missouri. Topic number two involves that couple that you've probably seen by now, the famous photo. It's been memed all over the Internet. It's a couple in St. Louis pointing their guns at protesters who are marching to the St. Louis mayor's home to demand a resignation.
2: Breaking the Internet, these people are, right? Um, Not a great look for them. They're both uh, actually personal injury attorneys, Brad, in uh, Missouri. Uh, <laughs> their houses are, I think, a third of the size of the Illinois Hammers attorney.
7: I don't know.
2: Down by yeah, the river. The one uh, guy was brandishing what looks like an AK-47 or a machine gun, and then his wife is holding off a pistol. You know, legally, uh, what, what, why, why Tina and I thought this was interesting is, you know, can they be arrested? The authorities are looking into uh, whether what they did was illegal, and the question comes down to Uh, Missouri's castle doctrine. Missouri has what's known as a castle doctrine, which basically means your house is your castle. Missouri has one of the most liberal uh, interpretations of this concept, which is a modification of the Stand Your Brown idea. Basically, Missouri says that if you're in fear, not just of your own safety, but of your property, you have the right to defend yourself. Now, the question, if the authorities arrest these two, will be To what extent did they actually fear for their lives? The uh, attorney was on TV today saying he really did think they were going to come into his house and I think harm his dogs, he said. Even if they didn't, though, Missouri law says that you have the right to stand your ground and defend your home. I think that's a bit of a crazy law that you're able to use deadly force to defend your dwelling. Um, And ultimately, the question would be whether it was reasonable for them to act that way in the face of what seemed, at least per the video, to be relatively peaceful protests. So uh, pretty interesting, but overall not a great look, Tina, for these two.
3: Well, I agree with you. I mean, they're lawyers for goodness sake, right? But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Under local law, they are able to use deadly force. And I mean, I think that that's the critical part of the analysis here, right? Is that they're able to use deadly force to protect their property. And I'm not sure that, they even, that the analysis even looks at how reasonable or unreasonable it is. The law says that they can do it if they think their property is at risk, and some of the accounts I saw mentioned that the gate, for example, that surrounded the property, that the metal was like a wrought iron gate, you know, from over a hundred years ago, and that it was being bent by the protesters, you know, and that was in an effort to demonstrate how, I guess, um, agitated the um, the protesters were. At the end of the day, I don't think bringing out the artillery that they brought out was reasonable. And I think there needs to be a change in this law because this could have ended up being a terrible outcome, given what the current state of the law is there.
2: Yeah, Brad, um, in fact, the, the protesters were technically trespassing because uh, where they were, while it seemed like it might have been public property, was in fact private property. Does that make a difference to, to you? What, what are your thoughts on this kid?
10: well so it 's so outrageous that this couple this couple sort of incited the whole incident and almost caused deaths. I mean it was pretty clear when they come out with major artillery, and people are marching they 're furious and they 're just going to the mayor 's office it's all their, to the mayor 's home, and they 're going to, to peacefully go to the mayor 's home and they 're going to uh, their First Amendment rights, and they come out with artillery, and they are so lucky that someone didn 't shoot them. And quite frankly, I'm not sure under the law that they would have been right if they had uh, been shot, that they could have done anything because they alarm they incited the situation by bringing heavy artillery uh, to this. And all they were doing is going on the street to the mayor's house. I mean, it's, it's absolutely outrageous, I think, what they did. And I think they're very lucky no one got hurt. Mary, you've obviously
2: covered this, these stories extensively over the last few weeks. Um, what's your take on what these two people did and and how it would be perceived um, among protesters and minorities for these two, you know, very well-off, white, older, rich people to be doing this in the face of protesters.
9: Well, obviously looks like a Republican against a Democrat thing, if you ask me right off the bat, but these people are nuts. I mean, who would do that? I, you're in more danger coming out with guns than you are sitting in your house and protecting your house that way, but I think the whole thing about it that made me think about it was that they broke through the gate. I mean, that's obviously they, they trespassed and they broke through the gate, but thank God nothing happened that wasn't escalated because then it'd be a whole other thing, like you guys said. So it's it's crazy. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but that lady especially, she scared the heck out. She looked like <laughs> she had a hose. She looked like she just, hit, you know, didn't even, I didn't even know it was a pistol
1: until I looked really close, so. It <laughs> looks like the type of woman that would pull the trigger accidentally, right? Yes. <laughs> she has no idea what she's doing.
9: I mean, was it even loaded? I don't know.
1: The like, ultimate Karen, right? She's a, she's a Karen. <laughs> all right. Topic three involves rent in Chicago. And for all the things that we're currently living in, I think a lot of people don't think about the future. And this is, Rich, one of the biggest questions I've had. All these big offices downtown where your employees, you know, the people rent the space, but all the employees are working from home now they're not going to want to pay rent anymore. And one law firm in Chicago is saying they shouldn't have to pay rent because it's unsafe for the employees to use that space. It's a real interesting
2: case. It involves a firm that Brad and I know well, uh, Goldberg, Weissman, and Cairo. Very, very good firm. Uh, but they, yeah, they have filed suit against their landlord saying that because there's a provision of the lease saying um, that the, the space has to be habitable, has to be safe, and... Uh, it's not yet safe, and therefore we don't have to pay rent, in so many words. Uh, they gave an example of the lawsuit, as an example of the lawsuit, the fact that you have to get into an elevator, um, and you'll have to, you know, there'll be a maximum of four people in the elevator, but even four people is not social distancing of six feet. Um, so interesting, I, you know, we've seen some other similar lawsuits, but never one to, not one to this extent. I think they have two floors at one uh, whacker um you know so pretty extensive uh rent pretty extensive lease and you wouldn't be surprised that a law firm would be bringing a lawsuit like this but um it's interesting because yeah you will see this push and pull of you know a private contract between two private parties and what the public and what the government is mandating um but i think it's you know if if everyone didn't pay their rent using these legal theories as a basis, we'd be you know, in real economic difficulty. So we'll see how this lawsuit plays out. But Tina, uh, what, what were your thoughts reading this lawsuit?
3: You know, I thought it was really interesting. And clearly, this is not the first or the last one of these that we're going to see. But I, I do think that the outcome of these cases is going to be very fact intensive, meaning that it really is highly dependent on what the landlords and the building owners are doing to try to enable their tenants to get back online. There were a couple of things that I noted about this case that I thought made it a little bit different um, and sort of swung, I think, in the plaintiff's direction, including issues with HVAC systems. Like, I know that there are folks that are taking the steps and making the investment necessary to make sure that they retrofit the HVAC system to the extent possible oh. to deal with issues relating to COVID specifically. I mean, that's just one example. And then also with the elevators. I know there are um, landlords and building owners that are being very conservative in terms of how many people they're allowing to be in elevators. Um, You know, sometimes only one, sometimes only two using freight elevators um, where they otherwise wouldn't to make sure people stay sufficiently distanced. So I think it really depends on of of this case. But I mean, those were two things that really stuck out to me that I think may be among the differentiators here.
2: Brad, you're back in your office, it looks like. Yes. Yes. We're back for the first week in three months. Okay. So uh, you obviously, or maybe not, uh, but you feel as though your office is habitable, is usable.
10: What are your thoughts on uh, lawsuits like this? Well, this is the second lawsuit I've read. The, there was a suit by Jenner and Block, which was a, really alarming compared to this suit. When I mean, They have hundreds of attorneys compared to this firm, which has 20, Goldberg Weissman. And you're wondering if this is gonna be a trend. But I'm sort of looking at this, in my personal opinion, is that law firm is looking at, maybe we don't need all this space. Mm-hmm. We're just as efficient working remotely. Let's try to break this lease. And uh, I see Sam here pointing, I'm looking at this that landlords are scared now because if this is going to happen, then they're going to be in big trouble. Sam, what are your thoughts? You look like you're right on point with this one.
1: I mute myself for a second. This is another problem. I have to always mute myself because I never know what I'm going to say. But anyways, no, I, I agree with you, Brad. and I brought it in, and then I'll let Mary take over when I'm done. Um, I know a lot of people that own buildings downtown, and they're terrified because they've got law <laughs> firm on floors six. They've got restaurant on four five. You go down the page and there's a lot of business inside these buildings that they have put a lot of capital into. And what are they going to do when these companies that are paying $50,000 a month in rent just stop paying? You know, there's, right, be, so there's that,
2: be a rollover yeah. effect. Sam, to so your point, and Mary, uh, the counter to uh, this lawsuit is, come on. Like, you know, you signed a lease. None of yeah. us could foresee the pandemic, and as long as I, as the landlord, as the building owner, is adhering to the basic guidelines mandated by state local officials, you're on the hook. Pay your lease. You know you can't uh, you can't not pay your lease under some theory that well it's too dangerous when we are adhering to what the government says is safe.
9: Yeah, and what's going to happen now to leases? Are they going right. to have to change leases and and put um, uh, even if an unprecedented pandemic occurs? You know, you okay. still have to pay your lease. That's going to have to be in the lease now for everything, I think. And, I mean, I for, we're back in our offices at 303 East Whacker. I, I feel fine. I mean, we'd have the elevators, you know, with the arrows and all this, all this stuff going on. And I think people have just got to, you know, uh, give in to these lawyers. I mean, I feel sorry. I not say you. there's too
2: much lawyer, lawyers because the, no, the, <laughs> the, the hammer will sue
1: you right now. We're going to drop the hammer on you, Mary.
9: <laughs> the people who own the buildings, you got to just say, hey, come on, it's not their fault, you know?
1: So hold on. And, and you all went to, most of us on this call went to very prestigious law schools and now work at law firms. But I got my law, I guess, degree from my cousin Vinny. And, you know, one of the words <laughs> of my cousin Vinny was precedent. So, you know, to the lawyers in the room, if one person wins a case like this, doesn't that just create a domino rally for all the other people that are going to come afterwards?
3: Well, they may try to glom onto it, but at the end of the day, I think they're going to be very very fact-specific. So you've got that as a sort of counterbalance, depending on how they came to the decision, what the facts and circumstances were. The counterbalance is that if you've got other cases that are not quite the same with without facts that are quite as compelling, then that wouldn't necessarily mean that you would... Be able to rely on that
1: case. Two Utes. <laughs> <Two youths, yeah. laughs> Jerry Gallo, no Jerry Callow. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's move on here. We're more than halfway home on the legal grab bag. Tina, one of your favorite people in the world as far as a music uh, person. Justin, oh, yeah. beaver, I know you're a huge Beaverhead. And a great
2: Canadian <laughs> on Canada Day, by the way. We have to yeah. give we have to give credit to him as a Canadian.
1: So the Beebs has filed a massive defamation suit. And this is over tweets, essentially, the way I read it.
3: Yes, we love to talk about our social media here on Legal Faceoff. So the Beebs filed suit in L.A. County last week. Um, there are a couple of women who recently tweeted that he had sexually assaulted them. And this, this allegedly these purported incidents happened a while ago. We're talking like 2014 and 2015. Um, and they were pretty nasty allegations and the Beebs came back on social media and said, because of the nature of the claims. And I thought that this was actually a really great way of handling it, putting aside the lawsuit that he filed for $20 million for defamation. He went on social media and he said, because of the nature of the allegations, they have to be addressed. But then he also went on to say that these are just fabricated and that he has alibis for when these incidents allegedly occurred. Um, I think that he is very savvy and sophisticated in understanding that the context in which these allegations are coming up, given the whole Me Too environment that we've been in, I think he understands and is is handling it as delicately as he can, um, how best to defend himself in this type of an environment. Um, defamation is a pretty, um, sometimes depending on the circumstances can be tough to prove. You have to prove that there was a false statement, um, that was communicated or published and that a third party accessed it and that that statement was made, um, incorrectly with at least a negligent, um, type of action by the defendant and that it resulted in a harm. Um, these types of allegations can not only torch his career, but also, um, end up with far greater, um, worse circumstances than that. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but it sounds like these are just, um, they are not founded from what I've investigated on this.
2: Well, it's tough, Mary, because, uh, you know, you want to believe victims. We're all in the age of Me Too, and you want to give victims who speak out um, you know some degree of credence and you want to make sure that we don't victim shame them. Um, on the other hand, you want to give people their due process and the right to defend themselves. The tricky part is, you know, Justin Bieber obviously has a lot more resources than most people in the ability to hire lawyers and file lawsuits to fight back. Um, so it's a really tough line that I think, you know, we tread when we, when we see these kind of cases. Well,
9: You know, legally, I I don't understand how personally you can sue an anonymous person. I mean, this person's anonymous, right? Her name is like Bambino or something. I don't know what I read. There were two names of these women, but nobody knows who they are, right? And how how do you legally sue an anonymous person?
10: I think in the lawsuit, they'll get to the bottom through discovery who these people are. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is that uh, I don't think there's any criminal charges being brought against these women, is there? Did anyone read any criminal charges? I didn't. No, I didn't. Right. So uh, it sounds like they could be baseless uh, allegations by these people who tweeted it, and uh, you know could, like you said, in the face of the Me Too generation, this could destroy his career if it snowballs. So I, quite frankly, don't blame him for bringing these allegations, unless there are criminal charges against him. Then you'd be really weary of it.
1: So this story is very wild. Um as are most stories with the word Trump attached to them. But Trump's niece, Mary Trump, is bringing out a book, a tell-all memoir about, you know, Donald Trump, the president. It's called Too Much and Never Enough. But Trump's brother, Robert, is trying to halt publication. Tina, I get more confused the more I read. Can you clean this up for us? Sure. So
3: his niece um, is, is trying to publish this book and originally, um, they were able to shoot down the court's attempts to stop it. But actually, within the past couple of days, um, the judge decided that the publication is going to be halted until this can be looked at in closer detail um, by the court on July 10. Um, the basis for temporarily blocking the book, to make a very long story short, is that there was a nondisclosure agreement that was put into place many years ago when um Trump's father passed away and they were addressing issues with the will. And so the legal basis, at least, that is being used as a basis, whether it's ultimately going to be successful or not, I think we can debate here right now, um, is the fact that she had an, a non-disclosure agreement, a confidentiality obligation to not tell all. And therefore, um, because of the nature of the book and what it discloses. Um, She should not be able to publish it. I mean, I, for one, think that um, there's probably certain types of information in the context of the will and the estate of her grandfather that um, it may make sense for her not to disclose. But I think there's plenty other stuff in here that may have been publicly known already um that is not violating that agreement so um it'll be interesting to see how this one shakes out i can't wait to read it that's for sure if we get an opportunity to
2: do so yeah. lots to unpack your legal i mean the, the judge in, in poughkeepsie which is just a fun word to say and uh what was that what was uh who was the character on Ally McBeal? tina remember Richard? uh he used Calista to just- no, but the, but, the, but her boss used to used to shout out Poughkeepsie every now and again. Anyway, oh yes, yes. Uh, the the judge uh, in Poughkeepsie said that, as you said, it's really a, it's really a simple issue of whether this violates a contract. But the bigger legal issue is is one of prior restraint, right? I mean, the First Amendment bars prior restraint, and the lawyers seeking to uh, avoid publication of the book say that don't make the mistake that was made in the John Bolton book that Trump also tried to, the Justice Department tried to limit the publication of that book. And the ju- the, the attorney for uh, Trump in this case said in, in the Bolton book, the judge said, while the book did disclose confidential information unquestionably, The damage was already done because you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. The book was already published, so it's too late. In this case, they're trying to preemptively avoid that happening and saying, Judge, this book also violates an agreement, maybe not the same national security issues, but that was the subject of this settlement. Therefore, it should not be published because when it is published, it'll be too late. So, you know, similar to the Bolton case. Mary, what are your thoughts on... uh, on on mary trump's book are you uh are you hoping it gets out
9: oh yeah i mean i definitely <laughs> want to want to read it but is there a time limit on when it can be published if if they bar it for can can they can she publish it later not not that it won't do any good then
2: well Dr. the hearings on july 10th and and the book's scheduled to be published on july 28th presumably <laughs> if the judge fa- finds against her then he would bar it from being published at all
10: yeah well, right what are your thoughts on this one well, you know, the thing is that it all comes down to the NDA. And can the NDA be knocked out? And there's two elements to an NDA, whether they can be knocked out. Is it overbroad? Is it vague? So these are the questions that uh, they're going to try the niece is going to try to argue that this NDA, which we've none of us have seen, that it's just very vague and it's overbroad and it should be knocked out. And that's what this emergency hearing is going to be about. I mean, very interesting. I can't wait to read this book. I'm just starting the Bolton book. So uh, although I read some reviews that
2: it was really boring, so I'm not sure if I'm going to jump in, but I I started last night.
10: I'm not Uh, sure this book is going to disclose something we all don't know already about Trump. I mean, you know, we did almost everything. I'm sure we we almost know what it's going to say. Well, she'll
1: make a lot of money in sales if they allow it. So that's really all that matters for her, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's move to our next topic. If you've been living in Chicago proper for the last two to three weeks, you probably noticed an alarming uptick in fireworks going off at all times of the day and all times of the night. Uh, somebody blew off an M-80 down the street last night. It scared the hell out of me. And I saw this quote, Rich, that a Boston public official, Mayor Marty Walsh, held a press conference last week about the fireworks use. He says that firework complaints are up 2,300%.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a wicked pissa for sure. Um it's out of control. I mean, I think uh, the pandemic is making people bored. And in my neighborhood, like Sam's, you hear it all hours of the night. I get those little alerts from the different you know neighborhood apps, and people are saying, "Is it gunshot? Is it a f- is it fireworks?" You know, Illinois is one of the few states that bar basically all consumer use of fireworks. Um, there's always legislation every year, as there was this year, to legalize it. Uh, Illinois still is a standout. but you know, you could drive half hour away. And get and load up your car with fireworks across the border um, and bring it back. And the police pretty much turn a blind eye. I mean, the police are busy, you know, obviously now more than ever. I mean, we're seeing record number of shootings every weekend, very <laughs> tragically. So the police are busy doing other stuff. So I don't know. Is it time to legalize fireworks? Or, on the other hand, is it time to crack down on it because of how prevalent it's becoming? And maybe it is taking the focus away from legitimate police work. Uh, <laughs> Tina, in. Are there are there fireworks in Evanston? You live in uh, Pleasantville. There's no fireworks. There.
3: <laughs> I, I would hard, I, I would not call Evanston Pleasantville. Um, there's been plenty of them. I mean, we're hearing them every night, and every night I'm turning to my husband and saying, "Were those fireworks, or is that were those gunshots?" I mean, that's really not. I mean, I'm sure everybody here in this conversation shares that sentiment, wondering, "Is it a gunshot or is it fireworks?" You know, I would love to think that everybody could be responsible using fireworks and therefore we should legalize them. But my concern is that while, you know, you may have, you know, bottle rockets or whatever that are relatively innocuous, for every bottle rocket, there's a boatload of fireworks that are not more, you know, on the innocuous side of the spectrum. And so I don't think that we're ever going to really see, you know, this carte blanche legalization of fireworks. Um, and I think it's something we need to watch. I mean, obviously, we've got to stop the killings that we're seeing, um, but we also need to make sure that this fireworks issue doesn't get out of control to the point where people are losing their lives or being seriously injured um, because of the use of the fireworks.
2: Brad, is the hammer taking on fireworks cases? Are you suing? Are you suing Chinese manufacturers of uh, <sighs> bottle rockets and M80s?
10: No, we feel this is just an anomaly, personally. People have been cooped up for uh, three, four months. They're bored to Wait, death. Did, so they're... I say, did you just say no? Is, you mean, did you just
2: say on national podcasting that there is a case you turned down? I want to make sure. that.
10: Well, can anyone help me think of a theory of a lawsuit that we could bring? I, maybe I'll take those cases all now. Right. So this is just an anomaly. We all know people have been cooped up. They're bored to death. So they're going up across the border to crazy Kaplan's where there's 500 billboards. And they're, they're going and getting their bill, their fireworks there. It's entertainment. Sam, does
2: the Illinois Hammer resent the fact that Crazy Kaplan has all those billboards because it detracts drivers from seeing what they should be seeing, which is the Hammer billboard? I actually,
1: Hammer. it's funny you, you know, say did, that. Sam, what do you want to say? No, it's funny you say that because there used to be a monopoly for Crazy Caplans, but I drove down the Bishop Ford and the Borman about a week ago, and there are competitors Starting to pop. It used to be 90% crazy Kaplan ads, but now there's like Johnny's and Jimmy's. So there's, there's actual competition. And you know, all these businesses do is load up from June till the end of July. That's, that's all they do. Mary.
9: Yeah. And I mean, you know, we have a place in Wisconsin, so we, you know, we shoot fireworks up in Wisconsin once in a while with my boys and all that. But, or you show know,
2: up I, your fingers, show your fingers to the camera. Lock her up. Lock
7: her up. We don't have a dog.
9: So we don't have a dog, so they don't bother me as much, except I have to go to bed early. And, you know, these things are going off all night. I live out in the western suburbs. But I mean, I read that stat that 10,000 injuries last year from fireworks and there were 20,000 from like grilling out. Right. So I mean when get you can off. Hear it, like, get off the then, fireworks. Yeah. I I, I don't know. I, I almost think just legalize them and then we'll make more money for the state, you
2: know. I mean This is I, the first year I'm not doing fireworks. We have a long tradition of doing it here in the alley where I live, but last year one of them went sideways and went Ooh. under an SUV that was parked on my street. And I thought maybe I'll draw the line of blowing up someone's
1: escalade. So <laughs> Probably for the best. Our final topic here on legal face-off on the legal grab bag. I'll just read the title, Tina. The Rolling Stones versus Donald Trump. It seems
3: like everybody's ganging up on him these days. Poor Trump. Oh, yeah, poor Trump. You can't
9: always get what he wants, can poor. he? <laughs> you
3: can always get what you want.
9: So, um, you know, in, in
3: true form, um, the Rolling Stones are one of many artists Um, that have threatened legal action against President Trump over the past several years for unauthorized use of their songs. So in this case, we have the Stones, who um, it's you can't always get what you want, as well as Start Me Up, that President Trump has been using in connection with his campaigning. um, And they've threatened legal action. As of a couple days ago, they've come down pretty hard. Now, there are a couple of licensing organizations that a lot of our listeners I'm sure are familiar with, ASCAP and BMI, Um, and between those two organizations, they're responsible for licensing millions of songs by various artists, and between those two organizations, they have a good chunk, if not all, of the Stone's catalog. What's interesting is that President Trump, like many other politicians, has a license that is exclusively for political use. Um, But what some fail to realize is that artists can opt out of those licenses. And in this instance, the Rolling Stones have opted out of that licensing. And so um, the president apparently has gotten a cease and desist letter. We'll see if he actually stops using the Stones music. Um, They are one in in a fine line of many different artists, including Neil Young, um, Dee Snyder. Uh, and Tom Petty, among a number of others, who have also sent demand letters to the president over the past few years.
2: Yeah, uh, Trump is no stranger to litigation, so I'm not so sure a lawsuit is gonna dissuade him. Um, but it reminds me of, of course, you know, back in the day when Springsteen told Reagan to stop using Born in the USA in his campaign. Uh, that was the first time I think I heard of a performer um, telling a politician not to use their songs. But um, I don't think it matters. I, I think Trump will absorb the lawsuit because he, you know, he loves, he among every other, poli- it seems like Start Me Up is the go-to song for any, you know, political rally out there. Brad, uh, what are your thoughts on this litigation?
10: You know, I sort of think that the Stones are just paying lip service because, let's take a look at 10 uh, years ago.
9: That's funny. Think,
10: uh, 10 years ago, Michael Jordan sued jewel and dominic's and won eight point million dollars and he distributed it because they used his likeness to children for charity if the stones who are as wealthy as michael jordan really believe that it's outrageous they should be suing and donating the money to charity i think they're just paying lip service and trying to tell the public hey we don't like trump if they really mean it sue them and donate it to charity like michael jordan did there you go File a lawsuit, Mary. That's always the
2: answer. That's right. That's
9: right. Hey, I'm a major Mick fan, so I say Mick, go for it. But, yeah, how do we know he's not going to donate it to charity? Maybe ah, he is. Right. Maybe he's already thought about that.
2: All right, we got we got to go around the room, which we always do, and give us your favorite Rolling Stone song. Tina, you're the uh, host of this. Awesome so Give us your favorite Rolling Stone song of all time.
3: Well, there are a lot of great ones, but the one that immediately comes to mind is Angie. I love that song.
2: Angie. Sam? Wild horses. Excellent. Brad. Start me up. <laughs> wow, way to go on the limb on that one. Mary.
9: <laughs> oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's uh got happy, jumping Jack's flight, uh, one
2: of those. Sing
9: it. I got happy. I like happy. I mean there there's Happy uh, is great. Now, yeah but this is a different one it's it's kind of obscure and now I can't remember it I wish you guys would have warned me about
2: this He's one a
1: rainbow
2: on the spot, on the spot. well my favorite is uh tumbling dice love that song and uh have you guys seen the stones in concert yes they're still uh still going at it so uh, almost what 80 years old now they're fantastic
0: I, I saw steel, steel
9: wheels i I love them Mick is a uh, I just love how he can still dance at the same, even after his heart surgery.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, to close up the show, I promised a a Canadian show and tell. I want to show you guys on Canada Day some... uh, Oh, there you go, Sam. Oh, and I also meant to do my Canadian backdrop, which I forgot, but you can't get get, uh, a lot of these Canadian treats in the United States. So this is uh, one of our favorite candy bars. Oh, wow. Very tasty. We got... Smarties, which are different from American Smarties. Mr. Big, which um, Sam's nickname back in the day. And then, of course, we've got uh, Wunderbar. Rich, you were know, just, you're just asking
10: bad. me how you lose
2: all this weight. And is this part of your new diet plan? Yeah, adding another 15 pounds. The other thing is, uh, you guys had ketchup chips? No. Ketchup oh. chips are a Canadian delicacy. This happens to be an American company. But um, you can't find them too often. I had to order these. But try some ketchup chips there.
1: You should have seen Mary Vandeveld's face when you pulled out ketchup chips. <laughs> Mary, I'll be sending I to
9: a potato chip connoisseur, but I'm not trying ketchup chips. My sister lives in Canada. Maybe I'll have her get me some.
1: <laughs> Put the expose helmet on. Put the helmet on. I see it in the background. Put it on. We can all say goodbye here. Have a great fourth. Happy Canada Day. Brad and Mary, thanks for joining us. And we will Thank talk to you, you next time on Legal
0: Two Thank you. It's great. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering Sports Hollywood and don't forget the.